thing that drives me crazy is when I get a response back and we send out RFPs because we're a listed company. And what I find is that the responses that come back are pretty much the same responses I would have got, you know, in 1995. You know, it's like, we're really great. We do a lot of really cool stuff. And then every, you know, there'll be some wording in there that we were innovative, which means nothing. Uh, we, we use the latest uh, process improvement techniques, which again means, means nothing. And so from a pitch point of view, they do not actually tell me what they do. What I'd like to see is someone say to me, hey, Mitch, oh, you're a real estate development company. Well, here's what we can do for you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Build Your Book podcast. This is your host, Aaron Bear and Neville Tank. Every week, we bring to you stories about the legal profession to help lawyers build a better book of business, a better practice, and a better life. Let's get started. Hello, hello. This is your host, Neville Tank. Before starting this week's episode, I wanted to let you know that the Build Your Book Academy is launching its next cohort. Our goal has been to help lawyers like you learn best practices and start using them in your busy days to grow your book of business, and with it, your confidence and happiness in this career. Whether you're an associate starting out, or a partner at a big law firm, or even a solo practitioner, we've got different tracks depending on where you are in your career. We have some incredible stories coming out from our pilot cohort, which we can't wait to share with you in the coming weeks. But if you're interested in joining the next cohort, make your way to buildyourbook.org academy. That's buildyourbook.org academy to learn more and apply now. And now on with the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Build Your Book podcast. And I'm so glad that we've got Mitch Kowalski on the show today. He's a GC and head of legal at one of the largest public companies in the world called Aoyun. It's a large international real estate developer, but he does so much more than that. He had his own podcast. He was a partner at Baker McKenzie. He's an author. He's a big player in the legal tech and legal operations space. And really, he's somebody with a lot of thoughts, and we're so excited to have him on today. So Mitch, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. So Mitch, you know, you were really involved in the legal innovation space. That's sort of how we met. And I'm curious, you know, for lawyers who are thinking about business development and, and standing out from the crowd, where where are we heading in the legal world? What are some things maybe they should know about? Well, it's it, it's really interesting where we're heading because I think COVID has pushed us a lot faster in that direction than we otherwise would. And so the concept that firms can actually function without being all together in physical space has an enormous impact on the state of the legal market. So what I mean by that is me as a GC, I have my external lawyers that I deal with and I deal with stuff internally as well. But the external lawyers, I have uh, not met them. Some of them I have never met. Uh, I've met them through video calls. I don't know what their office looks like. I don't know what their teams look like. Um, I don't even know where their office is located. Yet, I still enjoy working with them. They do still manage to do good work. So the question really becomes, is large firms or firms in some kind of physical sense the future of law or not? And I think the answer is, uh, probably not for a lot of people. 
I think what we're learning through COVID is that we can all operate independently as independent contractors and come together at, for certain projects and then break apart and do our own thing um, as time goes on. Very similar to what happens in the movie industry, right? So when you want to make a movie, you hire a director, then you hire, you know, uh, camera people, you hire uh, CGI people, you hire the actor, you do everything individually. Somebody puts those pieces together, they work together, and then they break apart. There is no movie company, per se, that says, okay, I'll just do everything because I have everybody in-house. That's not really how it works anymore. And so I can see something similar happening in law as uh, partners and senior associates at various firms say, hang on a second, do I really need all this apparatus? Because my clients don't care. And so I think that's instructive for learning what you can do as a lawyer in light of that fact and how do you make yourself stand out? What would you do differently? What would you, uh, how would you operate two, three, four years from now or even next year? Yeah, it's, that's a great point. And I mean, I'm, I'm obviously one of those people who, who did leave one of those bigger firms and, and joined a smaller firm. And we've seen plenty of, of people doing that. And I think a lot more people thinking about it. And obviously the overhead at some of those larger firms is, is massive. Those fancy offices you were talking about that are, that are sitting empty. And certainly COVID has accelerated a lot of the stuff. I know you've been talking about for a while, Mitch, and we're finally seeing you know, more and more of that happen. It's more than, it, it's also a little bit about freedom. Well, not, maybe not a lot, a little bit, like a lot about freedom. It's the freedom to practice law in the way that you want to practice it. Um, so, you know, I don't, I'm not going to work on the long weekend because I've managed my affairs in such a way that I don't have to work on the long weekend. <clears throat> I don't have a senior partner dumping stuff on me on a Friday night because I'm my own boss. So it's, it's more than just you know, uh, you know, office space and stuff. It is about freedom to pursue things in a way that makes you happy as a lawyer. Absolutely. No, and that, that freedom is, is huge. And I mean, I've certainly felt that in a lot of ways, you know, uh, some of the shackles have, I guess, in some ways come off. And, and more and more lawyers I talk to, I speak to so many younger lawyers, articling students, associates who are just not satisfied mm -hmm. with the model whether that's at a big firm or a smaller firm they're just feeling you know constrained they, they don't feel that freedom as you said Mitch, to practice law in the way they want to practice it and for some people that's going to mean working part-time or reduced hours and and there's no reason you shouldn't be able to do that you know these traditional things of you, you must work this many hours you must work in this type of model they, they just don't make a ton of sense um right so and, i'm and, curious yeah, go for it Mitch, again. <laughs> sorry let me, and, and let me just let me just Follow up on that. It, it's so you have the freedom, and you you are working in this sort of dispersed model. Let's call it that way, where you're, you're dispersed and you come together and you disperse again. Um, and th there's a firm called Gunner Cook in the UK that's very good at that. But the 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 thing is, is that when you're on your own, when you send a bill out, all that money goes into your pocket, right? There is no carving out you know, for overhead and all this stuff, right? It's like when I send a bill for $5,000, I get $5,000 in my bank account. And so as a result of that, I don't have to work 2,000 hours a year because 
all the money, you know, I'm working 2000 years, 2000 hours a year in a larger firm environment because there's all these other people picking at my hourly rate and my collections. Whereas if your collections is all going to yourself, it's like, oh, wow. You know, I don't have to work as many hours to work to, to make a decent living because all that money is coming to me. So I think that's something that people don't think about as much in this environment. Um, but I think it's important. Anyways. Oh, you're so right on that. I mean, I, I think this I think this past month, you know, we just wrapped up the end of August and I think I built 100 hours in August, mainly because I was working on this and a lot of other side projects. We just launched Furl Academy. And, you know, in that 100 hours, I'll, I'll make the same amount of money I would have made in big law, if not slightly more. But yet that hour, that that rate, that's 1200 hours a year would have gotten me fired or if not fired uh, <laughs> a large salary reduction in the future because my overhead was just so high. And as you mentioned, Mitch, there were so many people, you know, who needed th that money, you know, for, for all that sort of stuff. Whereas in a smaller firm that, that's run a lot leaner and a lot smarter in some ways, you know, that's okay. You, you can make the same amount, if not more money by working a lot less. And that if you're happier, your clients are probably happier, they're probably getting better service because you don't have to be, you know, so overworked and overwhelmed all the time. And obviously happier, fulfilled, all that good stuff for you. So in a lot of ways, it can be a win-win for you, for your clients, for your spouse, for your family, for everybody. 100%. Amazing. So Mitch, you know, you, you're in-house. Um, you're a former partner at a firm. You know what it's like uh, in the private practice world. And now, you know, you work with a lot of firms and I know you're talking to a lot of people. So I'm curious, you know, what do you see uh, when people are trying to pitch you? Let's start there. You know, what do you see lawyers doing that's maybe good? And I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts on what they're doing that maybe isn't so good. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think there is a misperception in the marketplace that there are certain firms that are super innovative because I can tell you from from both sides of the fence in terms of being in-house and dealing with some of these firms directly and being part of the innovation community and speaking to these firms and seeing them in action, that that is actually not true. Um, so the the sort of thing that drives me crazy is when I get a response back and we send out RFPs because we're a listed company. So we will send out RFPs to, to firms to say, you know, give us, um, this is the type of work we needed. Uh, this is what we're looking for. And what I find is that the responses that come back are pretty much the same responses I would have got, you know, in 1995, you know, it's like, we're really great. We do a lot of really cool stuff. And then every, you know, there'll be some wording in there that we were innovative, which means nothing. Uh, we we use the latest uh, process improvement techniques, which again means means nothing. Um, and so, from a pitch point of view, they do not actually tell me what they do, in the in the sense that like nuts and bolts. What I'd like to see is someone say to me. Hey, Mitch, oh, you're a real estate development company. Well, here's what we can do for you. All our uh, documentation, we'll co-author all our documentation because we think it's a waste of time to send emails back and forth with black lines uh, and uh, with black lines. And sure, that would be helpful because I hate sending emails back and forth and I always get confused and concerned that uh, along the line, we're going to have the wrong version somewhere. So there's no actual 
explanation of exactly what they will do. They always talk in generalities. Um, and they very rarely, <clears throat> sorry, practice what they preach. There's, there's no innovative billing. I have to really push for that, even though um, they'll say they'll be innovative, but apparently <clears throat> every file is a file that's not suitable for innovative billing. So it, it, I guess the overall response from me is be, be truthful and be real with me <laughs> and, and with all your clients. It's not just me. Tell them exactly what you're going to do. Give them exact examples that are appropriate for them and then actually do that. Um, do, not, do not rest on your brand. Yeah, I think the point you raise is really valid. And this is something we encounter all the time in our academy. We try and tell these, you know, we work with lawyers, we work with attorneys, and we tell them that you need a differentiating factor. And you need to be explicit about it. You need to make that point really clear, very articulate. You need to be very clear about it. And um, we, one of the activities we do is in our cohort, we look at the profiles of, of every single lawyer we have in a cohort, you know, five, 10, whatever number of people. And every single website is exactly the same. Just like you mentioned, they all talk about innovation. They all talk about client-centric uh, service. They all talk about the exact same thing, but there's no tangible way for me to understand what sets them apart. You know, what exactly does innovation mean? And I'm really curious uh, from your perspective, I mean, we have a hypothesis as well, but from your perspective, you know, why do you think lawyers are so um, resistant to putting their, you know, putting, drawing a, a line in the sand and saying, well, here's what we stand for. Here's what we can promise. Here's what we can definitely deliver on. Is it, is, is it just like a lack of, of real innovation in the space? Is it just a, a more mental fear that they have? I wonder where that comes from. It, it's an interesting question. So I think it's, it's always safer to be plain vanilla um, and lawyers, are risk adverse, so being safe is always the best thing to do. You don't want to stand up in the crowd because, God forbid, it turns out the crowd doesn't like that. So I think that's that's a big part of it. I think another part of it is um, <clears throat> when you're dealing with, a, let's talk about larger firms. You're running it by committee, right? And so you and 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 you have to appease a whole bunch of people. So the reality is when you have that kind of governance structure, you always end up in the middle. You're always plain vanilla because someone's gonna look at the website and say, oh my gosh, we can't say that. That is just, oh my gosh, no, that's that's wrong. And then you know, someone else will say, oh, and oh, and that part is wrong. And so you end up with all the comments from everybody in the firm, senior partners, okay, who, who are gonna criticize you. So the safest course of action is just, you know, just say random general stuff um, that's good enough. And, you know, hey, we'll just rest on our brand. And because we're, you know, we've been around a long time and that's good enough. And if you wanna do innovative stuff in your own individual practice, that's on you. But um, as a firm, we're just going to say, the magic buzzwords, but we're not going to go too deep in it because we don't want to get people upset within the firm. And I think that's a huge factor is too many cooks spoil the broth, right? 
it's it's you have to balance all this. So I've been speaking about this kind of stuff for about 10 years now. Okay. And the pace of change is is not as fast as I would have liked within the firms, right? So I 10 years ago, we could have been having this exact same conversation. Um, so that's troubling to me is that the firms aren't listening and there doesn't seem to be anything that can be said to them to make them change because they haven't changed in the last 10 years. And they're going to say to me, well, but you said to me, you said this to me 10 years ago. You said this to me five years ago, said to me this to me three years ago. And guess what? We just hit maximum profits during COVID. So Mitch, you know, go away. So the, the positioning can't be uh, fear. I think the positioning that, that I've been using for the last few years is that like, yeah, sure, I'm not selling you your firm's going to disappear in the next five years or in the next 10 years. But what I am going to tell you is that, A, you're going to start losing people who see a different way of practicing and want to practice that way. And guess what? Are able to actually take some of your clients away. Maybe, you know, BMO is not going to leave with, you know, a couple of junior partners somewhere else, but BMO isn't the only client of your firm. Uh, there's lots of other good sized firms like, like Aoyun, for example, who um, is able to pick and choose who it wants to do and will still give a good living to a, a lawyer who takes us on. So it, it has to be uh, an evolutionary kind of argument, like the evolution of your firm is pointing you in this direction and it's going to hurt you from an HR perspective. It is going to hurt you from a client perspective over time. The problem is if I'm speaking, if I'm saying that or discussing this with a group of senior partners um, who are leaving the firm in the next five to 10 years, why would they care? Right? Because once they leave, they don't care what happens to the firm. There is no pension plan for them that that gives them a skin in the game that they want to make sure that after they're gone, their law firm survives for a really long time because they're going to be getting some residual benefits from it. So that's so that's the conundrum. On the flip side, when we're, when we're talking to corporate counsel or in-house counsel, uh, I'm I'm in a pretty small pool of people who are actually care about this stuff. There are lots of general counsel at a lot of large firms uh, across this country and across the globe who like to talk a good game, but are not very good at uh, um, performing. So they will say that they need their outside counsel to do better. Um, and when the outside counsel says, okay, so tell me what you want to do, there's a pause and it's like, uh, I, I don't know, but you know, just be more innovative. And so if the client doesn't know what innovation means and the supplier doesn't know what innovation means, guess what? Nothing happens. So the in-house counsel, global and general counsel have to be very specific with their firm saying, this is what I want. And, um, this is what I'm demanding and stand by it, um, and be willing to move. And those are, those are, building blocks that are very few and far between. So it's a weird situation that we're in. You're right. There are things moving in the tech world. Things are moving faster. There are uh, clients who are starting to be, to look at legal differently. Um, unfortunately, 
the general counsel that they have all grew up in the system. And they all believe that the system is the only way to practice law, notwithstanding what guys like you, know, you two and, and myself talk about. And so there is, you know, a self um, replicating kind of system with general counsel coming from firms who don't believe it. And so until we get general counsel who are more rebellious and more concerned, then um, then we'll see some change. And until we see clients who are willing to say to their outside law firms, um, I don't need to have a seven sister firm on this file. Um, I'm willing to, to work with a smaller firm that has you know, no special branding name on it, but I, they're very, very good at what they do. Until those pieces start coming into play, I think we're, we're gonna be in this weird kind of holding pattern for the next few years. Uh, so that's, that, that's my, that's my, that, so Mitch, when you're, when you're talking, I just hear massive opportunities here. I mean, you're telling me law firms and I obviously agree with what you're saying. You're telling me these law firms don't want to change. There's a lack of incentives to change. You're telling me in-house counsel don't always know what they want. They're having trouble coming up with that solution. This sounds to me like an amazing opportunity for younger lawyers who can think a little bit differently and say to the market here's what I'm offering, you know, something tangible, concrete, all that sort of good stuff. I assume that would resonate with a lot of in-house counsel. If, if, if the lawyer was the one coming up to them and saying, I now do this, I don't do that. Like, do you see this as a huge opportunity or am I missing something here? No, no, hundred percent. It is a huge opportunity, but it, it takes courage, right? So <clears throat> opportunity is there. So if you're an a, a, so a mid-level mid associate that you've been doing a lot of work with, you know, certain amount of clients, and we know that's how it goes, that the partners will pass it down. They may be the um, partner in charge of that client, but the day-to-day -day work is done with certain associates or junior partners or senior associates. If those people were bold enough and courageous enough to say, you know what, um, we're going to break out our own and we're going to work in a different model. And as a result of that, we can pass some savings on to you as well, client, as well as providing you service that's much better. Um, what do you think? Would you go with us? And there are clients who won't go because they're enamored by the brand and, you know, they can sell to their board of directors that they used, you know, ABC firm. And therefore, um, you know, if anything goes wrong, don't blame me. So it takes courage on both sides. But yeah, there's there's lots of opportunity. Like I said, I've, I've had conversations with with lawyers um, who who um, who have made the jump and have said, "Wow, it's like the best thing I ever did." I can't believe I stayed in my firm so long because this is so much better. My clients are super happy. I'm busy. Um, you know, I'm having a decent lifestyle. So that we need to see more courage. Unfortunately, most people see law as uh, <clears throat> an employer-employee relationship. I work for a firm and my life and, and how I see myself um, is because of that firm, because I work at a big firm. So that gives me a certain status amongst my friends, amongst my family, amongst people in, you know, in the city. And if I go out on my own, how does that affect my self-esteem? So there's lots of, you know, weird factors, but I agree with you hundred percent. Great opportunity. This is what people should be doing, but 
they're not. Yeah, the courage is tough. I mean, I stayed at a large firm longer than I should have. Uh, and certainly it, it took a lot for me to leave. And, and obviously, I'm so glad I, I did. Uh, obviously, still like, you know, my former colleagues and all that, still in touch with a lot of them. But but that courage piece is tough. It's tough to leave job security and, and monetary security and all that other stuff. And you know what you have, you know, in a big firm. It's what you've been brought up from law school to do, right? You know, they filter you into the bigger firms. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's also, you know, I talk to a lot of lawyers who aren't happy, whether they're in big firms or not. And I think if you're not happy and not fulfilled, then it really shouldn't take that much. Like like the opportunity cost of leaving or making a change is a lot lower than people realize. But I think we all play that up in our heads and, and you know, it's a risk averse profession for a reason. But Mitch, I'm curious for you, you know, you work with outside law firms, you work with lawyers. What do you, what are things that you really like? When lawyers do, let's start there and then we'll turn it over to the other side. What are some things that, you know, concrete, tangible things that really annoy you? Because I don't think a lot of lawyers really ask their clients and survey them and say, you know, are you happy? What can I do better? What do you like? So, you know, let's start with what you like. Um, yeah, nobody asked me. Nobody's, nobody's asked me, actually. Um, usually I'm told this is the way things are going to happen. And that drives me nuts. Okay, so so being told doesn't work with me because I get off the phone call and say, "Am, am I the client? I'm sorry. Am, am I giving you money? My cl- my client. <laughs> you know, so I I don't get this weird relationship that um, some lawyers have, not all, right? But some lawyers have, where it's like I'm the lawyer. Um, and this is the way it's going to be. And we're not going to have a discussion about it because this is the way it's going to be because I'm the lawyer. And so that's, that's rule number one is it's an open dialogue, ladies and gentlemen. It is not, I'm telling you the way it is. Number two is um, don't forget that if you're dealing with general counsel, um, don't, don't forget their skill set. So don't treat them like they don't know you know what you that you are the uh, super expert in this field because you may or may not be, and don't don't talk to them in a way that is can be construed as condescending. So there, you know, there have been times where I've had to say, um, guys, I'm a real estate lawyer. I know this. Okay, so please don't, <laughs> you know, don't even go there. I know what I'm doing. That's why I have this role. Um, so that it, it being very cognizant of the skill level of the people you're dealing with, um, I think being open to a discussion as to how things are going. So if I say to you, hey, um, it, I would really prefer you to uh, to work in this fashion and not automatically tell me no. Um, that is is something and it, it sort of ties into that first point and so if you, if you can do those things then you have a much stronger relationship um you, the, i mean the usual stuff where you know get back to me on time that stuff that's that's bread and butter stuff you should be doing that uh, in in any event and our firms are pretty good at at that um, don't load up phone calls with three or four lawyers when you know it's a five minute call on a certain point you don't need to overload the file that drives me crazy as well um and you know don't don't pad your hours um 
which we have seen from time to time. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly rocket science. It's just being thoughtful about client service. Yeah, it sounds like part of this is actually thinking about what you as the client would want <laughs> and trying to put themselves you know, in your shoes. And what I really hear is asking, having a dialogue. And it sort of always blew my mind that people don't do this. One of the things I often ask new clients, I'll say like, how do you want to be charged? Do you want to do billable hour? Do you want a quote? Do you want a fixed fee? You know, maybe it's not possible 100% of the time, but a lot of the time it is, right? And I love to give clients that choice because quite frankly, like if they really prefer one, they're going to be a lot happier. They're going to refer me more work in the future. They're going to want to work with me again if I'm able to give them that. And I think, you know, it's it's mind-blowing that we're, that a lot of lawyers, I guess, are sort of assuming like they're in the power position, right? They're acting as if, you know, you should be so grateful to work with me, but it's the other way around these days. You know, the clients have the power, don't they, Mitch? What? Yeah. They do have the power and they don't realize they have the power and they don't really use the power. So just going back to, you know, what I use the firms for, because of my uh, expertise and what I do with my company, the outside firms are partners with me, right? Because there's certain stuff that I just, I, I don't do, or um, I don't do it well enough, but I know what it is, right? I know, I know how it works. Um, and so I'm just using, you're like an adjunct to me or a support system to me. Um, so we should be working in partnership on a lot of the stuff. And you know what, there are, you know, we, we have some good people who, who do that with us. And so that is super important is seeing it as a partnership um, and working together. Um, don't overload your files, uh, as I said, but don't overload them in the sense that look at who's working on the file. Right. Having people, the inappropriate people working on mundane stuff and charging us a lot of money is kind of not very efficient, right? And so better use, better resource allocation within law firm is, is something that as a client, I'd like to see. I don't often see it, um, but it is something that drives me a bit nuts as well. So think about who's doing the work when, when they're doing it. And, and why they're doing it um, so that we don't uh, have a problem later on. So Mitch, I know you mentioned earlier, you know, you do a lot with RFPs and I'm guessing there's some pitches too, whether it's in response to an RFP after when they make it to the next round or not. But has a firm ever said, you know, um, I actually, I'm not in a position to tell you why we're the best. I need more information. I need to know more about what you're hoping for and what you want. And then, and only then, can I actually tell you why I think we're the right firm? Like what, how would you feel if somebody yeah, actually no. reached out to you <laughs> that way? I would love that. Uh, yeah. And, and, and that is a lesson for general counsel and in-house counsel. When you do these things is you have to be hyper specific. Like the lesson that I've learned is that I can't, I can't speak in generalities when I'm asking for innovation because as we've already talked about, the firms just don't know what to do anyway. So saying, you know, get, show, give me something that um, makes use of some innovative, innovative processes or technology, they have no idea what to do with them. And, you know, they just send it to their marketing department who sends me the, the standard stuff off their website. So um, as a general counsel, I now have to say, okay, 
this is exactly what I want. So I have to spend more time on my end to say, hey, this, I want this, I want this, I want this, and I want this. Um, and be much more specific. So that's that's on me. And that's that's something that I take to heart now is that you can't ask people to do something if they don't know what to do in the first place. So you're right. But no one's ever yeah, asked me that. Yeah, and, <laughs> no and I feel like we, and Dowell, maybe I'll turn it over to you. I mean, you know, classic selling, right? Like how, how can you sell something if you don't understand what your client wants, right? We spent a lot of time trying to, uh, one of the first questions we ask people in our academy is, Sid, while you formulate your USP or unique selling proposition, you know, whatever you want to call it is understand the client. Don't understand them just from a very superficial level that, oh, you know, they're the CEO of such and such or any of that stuff, but really at a deep level, what keeps them up at night? What are they angry about? What's going on in their, in their industry? Is there a language that they speak, which you might not be familiar with? You know, like, you know, engineers are fairly analytical, for example. If you're working with the VP of engineering, you're going to have to speak in a different language than them. Uh, uh, what are they upset at? You know, what have been what have been their experiences with past lawyers, with other service professionals, and really kind of developing a bit of a gestalt understanding of a client at a very deep, uh, almost emotional level, so that if you know that the 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 person you're interacting with, the client, for example, cares more about you know being a good well, everyone cares about being a good dad or being a good uh, husband or wife or whatever it might be. Uh, you know that their time is valuable. And that goes back to your whole idea of the black line type of thing where, where you want to be concise, you want to be respectful of people's times. And yet somehow lawyers miss that. They miss understanding the client at that deep level. But once you understand the client at that deep level, and I think sometimes just a matter of going out there, talking with people beyond the scope of you know lawyer client, but as human to human. And once you start doing that, Building a USP, being human, everything that you're talking about here, Mitch, almost becomes second nature, I would think, because it's, well, once you respect the person, once you understand them, it's it, like you want to be able to provide them the service that they're requiring or they, they, they're asking for. Uh, and unfortunately, too few people are actually taking the time out or using their, their, I don't know, their empathy skills, their EQ skills, whatever you want to call it, to talk to people in this way, to understand them at this deep level. Um, and that's a real shame. Yeah, no, and, and I think you're 100% right. And I think part of the issue is, and, and I've said this before, and, and I'm, I'm going to start saying it more and more, um, and we're going to explore it in my class this year as well, is that I think law has a humility problem, is that if you have humility and you're humble about um, yourself and your services, you're more open to having this kind of dialogue and, and understanding others. If you, if you think that you're the smartest person in the room, then you're never gonna do this. Um, if you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're just gonna tell everyone this is the way it is because I'm the smartest person in the room. And I think when, if we as lawyers get away from that concept and think of ourselves as just a support function, a support to a solution that a client is trying to find and, and feel that deeply every day of the week, then I think we start to see um, the kind of change we want to see. But right now, I, I think we have a humility problem.
how do you uh, do you think it's just a couple of weeks ago we were talking with an incredible lawyer um barry wolf uh, and and we spent a lot of time talking just about this this idea of lawyers sometimes end up being deal breakers and not deal makers and they they think that they have maybe a hundred percent or ninety percent of the picture while in reality they maybe understand or they grasp maybe five or ten percent of say a situation and they're they're really missing out on the the other 80 percent of the picture um and i wonder what's the first step you know if, if you were a young lawyer even even a more established lawyer at a big law firm a partner even what would you tell them to maybe get out of their ego to to stop letting their ego guide them is it just they need to expand their horizons they need to stop start talking to more non-lawyers is it uh i mean what would you tell them i think that's a good start i think you know sure you the, the problem with young lawyers is that um and, and i don't mean that in a bad way i'm just saying the, the issue maybe a concern is if you hang out with lawyers all the time then you live in a little echo chamber right and so to the extent that you have more non-lawyer friends and that's a bad word non-lawyer but people who didn't go to law school as your friends then um i think they keep you humble because i think they they will knock you down a few pe pegs when you are being the smartest person in the room and they'll say yeah okay whatever dude um and that brings you down but if you if you surround yourself with other people who think they're the smartest person in the room i that's that's hurtful to you in in the long run um on on many different levels uh, <clears throat> so spreading your horizons definitely and i think really uh acknowledging your lack of knowledge right? so you're never going to know everything there is to know about any specific field right until maybe you're 80 and even then you, you you're, you're probably smart enough to know that you don't know everything. And so I think there's a perception amongst long, young lawyers that they're expected to know everything. And there's an expectation that they're be, to be the smartest person in the room. And that makes them uh, more difficult to uh, negotiate with because they've, they uh, put a stake in the ground very quickly and, and uh, live or die around certain points. Um, you know, I was with in a negotiation where the lawyer on the other side was, uh, you know, putting stakes in the ground where I was just going to be like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> why are we even fighting about these points? But uh, so there needs to be an appreciation from their mentors as to what's really important, a firm understanding from the client of what's really important. Um, uh, a willingness to speak to the client about what's really important because oftentimes the, law, the lawyers will just run off and just say, you know, I'll negotiate for the first, you know, three or four turns and then we'll come back to you. And that ends up wasting a lot of time because the lawyers are, are fighting over things that maybe they shouldn't be fighting over. If they would have just spoken to the lawyer straight off the bat, um, we would have got the deal done. So those, those are some of the, the things that uh, I would suggest. It's reminding me of, of a time uh, I was maybe in my fourth, I think it was my fourth year as an associate, and I was working with a lawyer on the file, like a more senior partner. And he said to me, like, Aaron, you know, you're really comfortable, like, providing advice to the client. And I went, like, like what is the alternative? 
like you know you know the the implication was that a lot of lawyers including other partners including quite frankly another partner on that file were not comfortable actually driving anything forward they were very comfortable pointing out risks and pointing out issues they were not comfortable suggesting to the client here's what i would do if i was you and and i sort of run my practice entirely under the guise of my job is to you're in a position, you came to me for a reason, maybe it's to get this deal done, maybe it's you need help in some area, and you have to make a decision on your end, so isn't my job to help you make that decision and at least say, you know, if I was you, knowing what I know about you, Mitch, and your risk tolerance, here's what I would do, or maybe say, you know, hey, Mitch, there's three different paths forward. If you have a ton of risk tolerance, I'd suggest path A. If you're in the middle, path B, and and no risk tolerance, uh, path C. And I just found it odd that that was seen as something, an unusual characteristic of mine, that I was comfortable giving advice to clients. Like, I don't, I don't know if that makes sense to you, Mitch. No, it, it does. Because, you know, when some of the senior partners, when I was junior, and look, you know, when, when I say issues with junior lawyers, I went through those same things. Like, I had, you know, I had my bad time as a lawyer. And uh, there were things that I think about now is that I shudder, right? So we all we all go through this. Um, but I often had lawyers saying, look, you don't make the decision. You just lay out, here it is. You know, here, here here's all the risks, here's this. You client, you go figure it out yourself. I was told that repeatedly. And that didn't make a lot of sense to me either because it's like, well, kind of, isn't that why we're getting paid? Um, the decision is theirs, but they need some help because they have no context um, in the grander scheme of things on uh, what these risks really mean, right? We can say it's a risk, um, and then, but it's a tiny risk. So that thinking, unfortunately, permeates a lot of firms, and um, I don't know what the solution is to that, other than uh, you have a proper mentor who understands that part of your job is assessing the risk for the client so they can make an informed decision. Exactly. And it just, it still blows my mind. You know, it's like, you know, you write a very long legal memo and I always think, yeah, of course there's risk. You know, we, we all know there's risk. That's why they came to you in the first place. If, if you're making, and I used to tell our articling students and our junior lawyers, I would say, you know, especially as a student, your client is actually me. Or, or some other lawyer internally, and your sole job is to make my life easier. And if you start framing everything that way, I think that's how you get to good client service. So, you know, internally for them, that meant, you know, thinking about what I was going to do. And I would always say to them, think about or ask, what is that lawyer going to do with your work? And how do I make it as easy as possible for them to do what they need to do? And I always take the same approach with clients. Like, what are they going to do? They're going to make a decision. So shouldn't my job be help them make that decision. And again, as you said, Mitch, it's their choice. But I don't think enough lawyers are thinking about that. And I I guess I'm curious, Mitch, we spend a lot of time often talking about what it takes to get a new client in the door. And and if you don't have any clients, that's obviously step one. But there's a whole other ballgame, which of course is keeping clients happy. And you sort of alluded to some of the things you'd like to see people doing more of or less of. But like, have you ever ghosted, we'll call it, you know, um, a client, like, like, cause I think a lot of lawyers don't realize they're losing clients because the client often doesn't want to, or feel the need to tell them, you know, you need to change. They just slowly stop sending that firm as much work or any work. And I think often lawyers are just thinking, oh, 
you know, they don't even realize it quite frankly because they're not doing the best job of tracking things or they just assume it's something that wasn't them. Like they blame it on external factors. Do, do you find that sometimes the case? Yes. <laughs> Again, uh, you, you hit it right the head of the nail. Um, it's, and my, my process is have a, have a call with, with a law firm and say, Hey, okay. Um, these are my concerns and how that uh, senior partner or uh, person deals with that is very instructive for me because if they get their backup and they, um, you know, give me a thousand excuses why they can't do any of the stuff that I asked for, um, then uh, it's, it's very easy to start shopping around and sending work elsewhere. And so it's, I think that's the easy route. Uh, um, I don't think many GCs sit down and say, guess what? We're taking all the work away from you. We're going to send it someone else. That's, that's a conversation nobody wants to have. So the ghosting is typically how things happen. So if you are not, you know, keeping an eye on the workflow, um, then you're never going to know it. If you are keeping an eye on the workflow, then you're going to know it. Um, and then you should be having a conversation and, and, and <laughs> with the client and, and to try and fix it um, and, and hope to God that you haven't had several conversations with the client and you've ignored all of them. And this is why your workflow is, is slowing down. Um, but ghosting is, I think, is really the, the way things typically happen. Um, because nobody nobody wants to have that really super hard conversation. Yeah, and it's also your time. I mean, you you don't owe me owe me that. You are the client at the end of the day, and if you're not happy, you know you're welcome to go elsewhere. And it just just always has blown my mind. I never understood this. You know, people spend so much time, money, effort, you name it, trying to get new clients, and once they're in the door, they don't think about wow. You know, what do I need to do to keep this person happy, including asking, are they happy or asking what they could do better or taking that time off the clock, you know, to to go out for the lunches or to go. And I don't mean to get more work. I mean, the lunches to better understand your client and the client's business, uh, go to the client site if it's a physical operating kind of business uh, and it's safe to do that. It always really struck me as lawyers were just sort of sitting back waiting for the client to offer stuff up. But I'm guessing, Mitch, like you would love your counsel, I have to imagine to take more, you know, show more uh, interest, I guess, in learning about the business off the clock, obviously, and things like that. Like, do, do you find that lawyers who, like, do you think a lawyer who does that is gonna have a better chance of keeping the clients and having happy clients? And are you seeing lawyers do that? Or is it a lot of just, they do the work and, and that's it? Yeah, I don't I don't see a lot of, uh, I think that that is helped. I mean, if we buy into the fact that this is a relationship, right? Um, then a relationship is built around people understanding the other person and what they're doing and what their fears are and what their concerns are and all these sorts of things. Just like if you were dating someone, right? You don't, you don't say, oh, we're married now. I don't have to try anymore, right? We don't, we don't do that. Well, maybe some people do. But the reality is, is if you look at your client relationship as a marriage that you have to both work on, 
um, and you both have to strive to to keep strong, then that's a good way to look at it. Uh, if I had, you know, I I try to do that, and I'm trying more and more now to really have those dialogues with my outside counsel to say, okay, this is, guys, this is really what I need to do. And, um, you know, along with saying, yeah, we're, we're doing really well in this. I'm really happy. Thank you so much. Um, and I think, I don't, I don't know how many lawyers have that kind of uh, good feedback from the in-house counsel. So I think it's a two-way street on the, uh, but someone has to start it. So whether that's external lawyers taking the time out to say, hey, you know, can I just uh, come to the office today and, and, and see what you guys are doing? Or come to the plant today and see what you guys are doing. So I have a much better understanding of what's going. And then I get to build a more personal relationship with the people I'm working on and have an understanding of what keeps them up at night. Uh, I don't see a lot of that. Um, and you know, COVID's weird because you can't really do that in COVID. Um, I mean, you could have a phone call, but I think people are a little, little leery of just having a phone call. It's face to face would be nice. So, uh, when we get back to times when we can have face to face, that would be a really good idea. The other thing is don't, uh, there's a perception amongst a lot of lawyers um, and it's it's all throughout the ranks, no matter how senior or junior you are, is that every second of my time is valuable. And so therefore, I should bill you for every second of time. And so uh, I think that is something that drives clients crazy. It drives me crazy. So when I go to my mechanic, which I just went to yesterday and took my car in because we just we had just driven up from Georgia and Florida, and there's some weird noises and we we're a little bit concerned about it. I took it in. I said, Carl, you know, can you take a look at the car? Some weird noises, a little concerned. He goes, yeah, no problem. Took it out for a test drive, looked under, you know, jacked it up on the jacks, looked under it. And he just said, you know what? It's, um, <clears throat> it's just car noises. Don't worry about it. Right. No charge. Now, if that was a lawyer, right, I would, I'd be getting a bill for that. If I go to the bagel store and, you know, uh, with my kids and, you know, the bagel guy gives my kids some free bagels to munch on. Am I going to go back to that bagel store? Because the guy was really nice to my kids and gave me some free bagels, right? Which the cost to them is like virtually nothing. Um, yes. Am I going to go back to Carl? Do I, you know, go to Carl for the rest of my life because he doesn't nickel and dime me? hundred percent. That's building a relationship. So that's, that's the other part of the relationship building and getting to know the client is saying, you know what, this was a two second phone call or not two seconds. This was a five minute call um, on nothing of great importance. I'm not going to bother marking this down because that's not what I'm, I'm not telling you the client that I'm only willing to speak to you if you pay me. I'm willing to speak to you to build a relationship and build a rapport so that we have uh, a better better way of working together. And, and this is something we talk about all the time. And actually a lot of our guests have brought this exact same theme of this idea of you, you can only build a relationship based on generosity and whether it be generosity of time or of energy. And obviously there, there are limits to that. You, you can't be giving your work away <laughs> for free, but it's worthwhile to spend a bit of that time because what you might be investing right now in, in you know, 
the baseline of that relationship and maybe going out to the site, learning how they work, all that kind of stuff pays off in dividends over many, many years. And I think a lot of people miss that. And by being so time focused, it's almost like they're they're shooting themselves in, in the foot because one of the most common complaints we hear about from lawyers is, I hate this, this billable hours model. I hate it. it. They themselves hate this model. They themselves feel frustrated and bound by it. And yet they feel this perverse need to, to continuing to kind of live in that mindset. And that's not to say that there isn't a time and space for billable. There isn't a time and space for all of these different models. But by being so focused on it, you're, you're almost kind of shooting yourself in, in the foot and preventing these other opportunities to come your way to work better, to build a better relationship, to get referrals coming to you. I mean, you know, if, if, you, if a, the, the bagel shop is giving a bagel to your kids, not only will you come back to that shop, but you're going to tell all your friends that you got to check out these guys because they have really good bagels, they're really nice people, all that kind of stuff. And well, in some ways, if you think about it, Bagels are bagels. You go to store A or store B, bagels are bagels. But what really elevates that experience is how they treat you. And I think that's a that's a metaphor analogy we use all the time. You know, like you have many different vendors on the street. They're all selling bananas. They're all selling legal services. And one person is billing this much for it. Another person is billing that much for it. And there's really no difference there. And pretty much the entire kind of point of this conversation that, that you know I'm, I'm listening to that you and Aaron and we're all talking about is, well, you can ascribe something that, well, th these sorts of bananas or these sorts of apples, oranges are different than the one next door. Maybe these are organic. Maybe these are fair trade. Maybe they come from a country you've never kind of, you know, eaten fruit from and it tastes really delicious. And um, I, I think lawyers are missing out on using the kinds of things they see every single day in their life and, and applying it to their own practice. Um, and this is such an important point. Relationships, the value of differentiation, the value of having some skin in the game. I think you talked about that as well, that sometimes these senior partners, they don't have skin in the game. And so there's this race to the bottom, this race, this race to kind of water down everything we're doing in some capacity and this real fear a uh, 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 sort of you know fear of any sort of risk taking, maybe even drawing a line in the sand, and and this has just been an incredible conversation. And you know, as we wrap up here, I'm curious if people want to get in touch with you, if people want to learn more about you, what do you think is the best? Well, what is the best way of, of reaching out to you, of getting to know Twitter. you more? <laughs> Twitter, Twitter, okay. Twitter, Twitter. So at me Kowalski is my Twitter handle. Um, I'm on Twitter probably way too much, uh, but it is. Twitter's interesting <clears throat> and something that I think lawyers need to be on if you're really serious about doing, you know, building your book, uh, providing a different client experience, because it gets you in touch with other like-minded people who are thinking in the same way. And it allows you to be part of a community that's outside your little silo in your law firm outside your little silo of your of, of your friends and family it's a complete it really opens up your wild and it's and it's uh not bounded by geography so the conversations in this area are very much global conversations and so to the extent that you can get the perspectives of people in australia the, the perspectives of people in the uk um, in asia africa you know, in the U.S., it's it's very very good.
for that. And if nothing else, you don't have to take part, but you can just be sitting there absorbing it and seeing what people are talking about, seeing the articles people are writing about, and that just really expands your horizon. Um, but just let me let me just follow up on two points, a couple points on what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, the, the client experience is is how you differentiate because law is law is law is law, right? Like it's it's all the same. Everybody's offering the same thing. So the experience with the client has to be the differentiation. And it's really hard for a client to cut you loose if they really like you and they're getting a good experience, right? It's just they're they're gonna forgive any mistakes you have unless it's colossal, you know. Um, but they're when when you have a good experience with a person, you cut them a lot of slack. If you don't, then you're gonna ghost them and go somewhere else. So from from just a self-preservation point of view or business preservation, creating a good relationship is good. And then the last point is I um, was product development man or product manager for First Canadian Title for a few years. Um, and is title insurance products and the sales guy the head of sales used to always say this all the time throughout the office it was what are the first three things uh, uh, first three rules of sales give first give first give first so that's that generosity that you were talking about it's like you give first and you give and that's how you start building that's what people want in their client experience so i'll leave it at that it's fantastic. And I feel like we should almost do another episode on, on Twitter because there's an art to it. You know, I think if you just follow uh, random people on Twitter that are corporate accounts, there's no response from them. You can't really engage in the conversation. But if you learn how to engage in conversations and, and you know, how easy it is for you to connect with um, very influential people very easily on the, on the platform of Twitter and to grow a following, all that kind of stuff. Um, more people would be on Twitter, but we'll make sure to include your Twitter handle on uh, in the show notes. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. It was wonderful talking with you and, and, and thank you for giving us that uh, confirmation that lawyers do need to start differentiating. They need to start thinking about what sets them apart. And I think the ultimate way of setting them apart is what you're, what you're saying is being more human, being more empathetic, being more generous, uh, giving. And I, I think that's a wonderful place to end this episode. Uh, so thank you once again, Mitch, for joining our podcast. And we hope to do this again soon with you. This was fun, guys. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Build Your Book podcast. For show notes of this episode and previous episodes, go to buildyourbook.org slash podcast. Our mission is to change the culture of law practice with these conversations. Please help us in this by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues and help us get these ideas to more listeners by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. It takes less than 30 seconds and helps us bring on more great guests for you. Thanks for listening. Take care.